Welcome to The Good Lawyer. This is a 2022 copyrighted podcast of the Young Lawyers Division of the State Bar of Georgia, where we discuss what makes a good lawyer. Let's get started. And we're back, and we have Mike Monahan. Buenos dias, Mike. Buenos dias. That is all the Spanish I know. <laughs> Tell us about Mike. It's a more of a Jack Kerouac on the road kind of story. <laughs> Because I grew up in a very small town in West Virginia, in the northern part of the state near Pittsburgh, up through that area. And uh, my father worked about uh, a 10-minute walk in the railroad yard north of where we lived, north of the neighborhood. The Ohio River was on one side, and the hills were on the other, and the railroad trucks, again, sort of in the middle. Um, and we were from a fairly, I guess you'd have to say, low-income family. Um, so I kind of grew up in an atmosphere where I, I saw a lot of things that were, I didn't think were fair. You know. Um, and even the lives of my parents, of my mother and father, I didn't think, you know, what happened to them in their lives was quite fair. So I learned, I, I was a, 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 an observant kind of kid. And maybe a little too old for his age at the time, I, I don't know. So, um, you know, and then I went off and uh, got a degree in foreign languages and then went to Mexico to study for a while and then ended up in graduate school and then finally ended up in law school. So then I ended up merging all of that into a law degree. And so I spent time in, in law school thinking I was going to stay in West Virginia because, you know, I, I, and I worked on labor and employment kinds of uh, cases or, or, or classes, and I thought that's where I would be, sort of workers' comp, um, union, uh, collective bargaining, et cetera, mediation, arbitration, all that sort of thing. And then something happened, and I realized, well, I could really mix my Spanish here with this law degree, and what would I do with that? Where would I go? And that was kind of confusing to me. I, I applied for a, a, a couple of jobs in uh, some law firms in West Virginia, one in Charleston, and uh, one of the hiring partners said to me, I, I see this, um, this background in Spanish and Latin, and Latin American literature, and you were, you were your college degree, and you were in Mexico. That's all kind of exotic. And I thought, well, oh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to think I can't stay here in West Virginia. Because uh, <laughs> I don't think it's exotic. <laughs> I think it's education. Anyway, uh, so I ended up in law school, in my last year of law school, like, like really trying to figure out what the heck I was... I almost used a bad word. What the heck I was going to do? Uh, uh, and uh, I was uh, just, I came in one day to class, and I was, I was just talking about this last night with a friend, some friends of mine. And the placement director said, if there's someone coming in today, you need to sit down with her. She's interviewing folks, and I think you, you'd, you'd be just right for this. And I had just walked to, like, two miles to heavy snow and slush and whatever, and I'm in my park, and, you know, and, and old jeans, and I said, I can't get back and change. And she said, don't worry, I'll explain it all. Well, I got hired by Georgia Legal Services that day to be a migrant farm worker attorney. And I thought, well, that's, I mean, this is just, they came to me, found me that day, and I thought, I, what am I going to say? Except, yes, let's do this. And it was a great eight years of my life. I lived in Tifton, Georgia. Um, and, you know, rural Georgia is just a really special place to be for a number of reasons. Some good and some not so great sometimes. Um, so I represented migrant farm workers for, oh, pretty close to nine years. Um, on wage and employment disputes, um, using the Federal Worker Ac uh, Agriculture Worker Protection Act, Fair Labor Standards Act, the Georgia Peonage Statute. Uh, Peonage, slavery did exist still at the time. Uh, <laughs> not on, on the records or in the books, but you could identify it quite easily. Also worked a lot of um, homeless men who were being recruited out of shelters in Atlanta to be brought down to the fields to be farm workers. And of course, many of them were in social security checks. Mm -hmm. Somehow, their social security checks were being intercepted by a farm labor contractor, representative payee. So it was an interesting place to be. So I, I dealt a lot with uh, Spanish-speaking migrant farm workers, mostly from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Guatemala, some Haitians, spoke Haitian Creole, which I did not. 
and some local folks and you know a lot of homeless men out of Atlanta and, and, and the shelters in Augusta and Savannah here as well. Um, learned a lot about life and I learned a lot more about fairness that we, you know, I had spoken about earlier with my family and our own circumstances when I was a child. Um, and I, uh, that's kind of formed my early years as a lawyer and who I wanted to be and what I thought about life and, and the people around me. So I know what you do, Mike, and Sarah knows what you do, and, and, and some of the people in this room know what you do, but tell us exactly what is the Pro Bono Resource Center Director for the State Bar of Georgia? It's a, it may seem simple, but it's kind of a long and complicated story. Uh, the State Bar of Georgia and Georgia Legal Services Program created a little partnership back in 1983-84, because back then the State Bar recognized there wasn't much for low-income poor people in terms of civil legal services in rural Georgia. And so the bar provided some space and a, and a little bit of money at that time um, to get us some resources to get some pro bono work started and encouraged in rural Georgia. Um, to help us find some partnerships and, you know, actually be sort of a support network. And, you know, after all, the, the, the YLD of the State Bar had created Georgia Legal Services back in the early 70s, so there was already sort of a, that sort of thinking about partnerships and delivering justice to, to people in, 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 throughout the state, and, uh, especially in rural Georgia. So uh, this Pro Bono Resource Center has been around since, oh, 1984, let's just say that as an official start date. So we've been around for, uh, do the math, 40 years? Oh, yeah. Oh, it would be 40 years. Yes, 40 years. Um, I should have a little party for that. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it's been around for 40 years. That. It's developed over time, though. And so um, back then it was a lot of, like, creating manuals and forms. And now it's more about recruitment, doing bar associations, doing speeches, um, creating materials, working with the legal aid programs, and working with other legal aid programs as well to create more of a justice community. You know, when I got started, I came to the bar in 97. I was, uh, before that, I was uh, in Tifton. And I, but I joined a couple of bar committees, uh, the um, individual rights law section, for instance, was one of the sections I joined. So I was one of the few like 912 area code folks who would come up to Atlanta for meetings or. It's not know. even the 912 anymore. No, it's not. It's 229 now yeah, down in Tifton. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I would come up. And so when this job came open, um, they asked me to come up because I was working with committees and sections. They kind of knew it, knew the lay of the land in rural Georgia, knew about poverty law. And uh, so I took the job. And I hadn't been in the job longer than, oh, maybe three months. And I went to a, an ABA pro bono conference in St. Louis in 1997. And I ran into like six or seven people who called me into a room on a Friday afternoon and said, we need to meet with you. Oh, oh, okay. I, I knew none of these people because it was my first time out there. And uh, it was someone from the California, Tex the California Bar Access to Justice Program, Texas Lawyers Care, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota State Bar, Michigan Bar Foundation. Oh, I don't want to leave anybody out, but Washington State Board. And then those folks, and they said, well, very few people are at state bars doing pro bono. And we'd like you to think more about pro bono but on a higher level, like access to justice with pro bono, because it's more about, access is more about, more than, more than pro bono. It's about more than pro bono. And I said, you know, fine, but I, you need to teach me. So they were my early mentors. So the pro bono resource center we know today is really about more like running the access to justice committee, doing the work of the access to justice committee, um, and looking at issues of assisted pro se, self-help, lawyer designed and lawyer supervised systems, uh, that get people access to some kind of remedy. Maybe not a lawyer, 
maybe just a form, maybe the next step up, some basic advice uh, or an advice system, and maybe a lawyer coming in at some part of it, or a full-fledged pro bono lawyer, either one-on-one -on -one or in a sort of a group activity. So there are levels of access. So pro bono to me and the Pro Bono Resource Center is more about a networking opportunity to work with local partners, other public interest organizations, and really bringing the, the bar more in line with not just Georgia Legal Services and their pro bono in rural areas, but more of a justice community building system where we all support one another and we can get resources out of Atlanta through our networks and into the rest of Georgia. There are legal deserts everywhere. There's a legal desert in, I don't know, Vine City, Atlanta, over in that neighborhood, because, you know, how many lawyers are setting up shop over there? And how many legal, civil legal problems are coming out of, that, out of that area? So that's kind of what the Pro Bono Resource Center is. And we look at trying to create some data around where the legal needs are, where the lawyers are, um, where, who's doing pro bono, who's not doing pro bono, and why those important reasons. We talk pro bono, we talk access to justice, and um, I just enlist a lot of partners, as many friends as we can find. It's all based on goodwill. And you mentioned legal deserts. Um, I'm familiar with it, but for some people who are listening and may be here today, um, can you go into a little bit more on what legal deserts are and what that means for our profession and specifically the Georgia legal community, what that looks like, what it is? Mm -hmm. Sure. The, really, the basic and really most compelling facts are, and I probably said this before, and I think it might have been... Oscar Wilde who said it, all great societies are based on people being moved deeply by a statistic. Um, and so here comes our chance to be deeply moved. 70% of the state's lawyers, more or less, are in the five-county metro area. Over, about 70% of the state's poor are not in the five-county metro area. They're somewhere else. We have seven counties in Georgia that list no lawyer in that community doing business, or, doing business uh, which is kind of a broad statement, I realize. Um, and then we probably have another 56 counties with 15 or fewer lawyers in those counties. And the question is, you know, some of those lawyers, what do we know about them? We don't keep a lot of demographic data about lawyers, whether they're judges, where they are, what their practices are. They tell us that information sort of voluntarily or through their advertising. But we know that a lot of those lawyers that we're, we're, we're saying there are up to 15 lawyers, some of those are judges and prosecutors, public defenders. Uh, or they're just not actively practicing law, they're keeping their license active, but they're doing something else. So that even means that the shortage of lawyers in those areas, in those legal deserts, is very great, and it's hard to deal with. Uh, so we have got to get lawyers from other places, and that's also hard to deal with. So legal deserts are places like Schley, Hancock County, all through that southwest corridor. Webster. Webster. <laughs> and so, um, you know, what do you do? Those are legal deserts. But we also have legal deserts in places like nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And you know, and even in metro Atlanta, where you have lots of lawyers, who's going into nursing homes? Uh, if you don't have an estate to plan, who's going there? Uh, and those people need powers of attorney. They need advanced directives. They need help with their family, helping them with their money to make sure that they're not taken advantage of, or the nursing home's not taking advantage of them, or they're getting the care that they're paying for, so to speak. So there is a legal deserts as well. So it could be very micro, or it could be on a grander scale in terms of where lawyers are and where they aren't. And even if you have pockets of lawyers in certain areas, they don't necessarily do the thing or, the legal pro or handle the legal problem that you have, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it even more difficult. Because lawyers, and, I'm, and I know I'm on a legal podcast here, but lawyers reserve this entire universe for themselves and then occupy a very small part of it. And that's a problem. And so we have to look to other things uh, to, you know, to get access to people. 
uh, to get access for people to legal remedies, to lawyers, to forms, to you know forms created and designed by lawyers, to um, other kinds of help systems. Uh, and that's a challenge on the pro bono side. Because the answer most lawyers think, and a lot of courts and judges think, is the answer is more lawyers doing pro bono. It's part of the solution. It can't be the only solution. There's a lot more to it. And the Pro Bono Resource Center is working with the Access to Justice Committee to sort of fix, figure that, all those pieces out. And you said that's not all of it, but just part of it. So what are some of the other factors? If it's you know not just getting lawyers in to represent pro bono, what are some other ways that you can... I guess, uh, allow others to have access to representation, to legal remedies, um, whether they're forms or just assistance with getting those forms. You know, in the most basic way, if you're a small town lawyer, you know that most people don't understand if they've got a legal problem to begin with. You know, uh, I've got a problem with my landlord and he's not fixing this. And they don't, they don't see that as a legal problem. Mm -hmm. And something's stalled and something's not happening that should happen there. So people don't recognize what a legal problem is. So there's one service opportunities to figure out how you go out and you do community education programming. If you're a lawyer, you, know, you might see it as marketing, but in the terms of a low-income community or working with seniors or a marginalized community, telling people how you identify what a legal problem is and how you deal with it is a really invaluable service. Um, you know, making more connections with, you know, people think in rural Georgia, when I lived in Tifton, for example, lots of this happened in the church atmosphere. Or you know, church going Sunday. That's where people met. That's where you a lot of the you know a lot of the thing, a lot of these things happened. You you ran into church members who you know they you know they need help with their the Cadillac dealer isn't helping them. Uh, we're a little off subject here, but you know, small town lawyers get hit with pro bono more frequently than the large law firm lawyers do. I mean, if you go up to 14th Street and try to go in King and Spalding, there's a battery of security guards sitting there that you've got to get through first. And then there's a little like turntable that you've got to get through that they've got locked. In Tifton, if you're a small town lawyer, you've got your door there. Someone walks in, they, they almost fall on your desk. You're right there. And it's harder to say yes or no. So the second way of dealing with pro bono is lawyers looking at this and saying, I'd like to manage my pro bono. Let me manage my pro bono. And I know I can't help everyone who walks in the door, but here's who I can help and how often I can help them. Here's my recommendation. Every lawyer in Georgia ought to call their legal aid program that serves their county and say, I'll take six cases a year, or I'll take four, or I'll take 10. This is what I'll, I'm looking for. And legal aid, will you help me do this? If they come to me, I'll send them back to you, you screen them, and if they're financially eligible and they're, they're low income or you know, some of the ways qualified for legal services, then you send them on to me. You know, they've done the screening for you, the low-income screening. They've done the, a, a lot of the background fact-checking and um, evidence-gathering. A lot of that's been done. And they, they, the program sends you the package. So there's a couple lawyers, and I think uh, there's a firm over in Covington. And I'm not, I, on this podcast, I'm not sure if I should mention the firm's name. but uh, You can name drop. It's a YLD, former YLD president, um, Michael Joffroy, who does this kind of work. Um, and, you know, on your website, this is how I do my pro bono. And you can tell people, I do pro bono. And you can still say no, but you know you're saying yes, and you're saying it in a way that keeps this organized for you and helps you meet what you're interested in doing in pro bono and also helps your community know that you're doing pro bono and also knows that someone knows that if they're going to ask you, maybe I should ask some other law firm. But then if everyone was doing that, then people would have a better sense as consumers of legal services, where to go and to get help. You know, doing community education and then making your office sort of 
visitors to your office and to your website knowledgeable about how you do your pro bono is really good. It's, it allows you to say no without guilt. And you should be able to say no without guilt, but say yes and be very clear about it. And every, every fall when you're designing, if you're a you know, January to December budget year, look in your budget, look at your budget, say I can do this much pro bono. And think about it strategically rather than as a, oh, how do I fit this in? Just think about it and set aside a certain amount of dollars or hours. I know if you're a big firm lawyer, much easier to do this kind of thing. But if you're a small town lawyer, if you're doing pro bono, that's money right out of your wallet, not so in a big firm. Um, so think strategically about your pro bono. That's another service piece that's really important. And the third thing is you know, to think about if you can't do pro bono and you have to say no, and you can still talk to us in the Piggly Wiggly, that's fine. We'll, we'll still talk to you, it's okay. It's okay to say no to us, as long as you say yes occasionally. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, think about um, you know, who else in your, whatever colleagues you have, what else can they do? And enlist them. I can't cover this. Maybe this person can do this for us. Um, or, you know, just start sharing it and like making some demands on your other business partners. So I'm going to do this for you. I want you to take a pro bono case. And strong arm some people. It's okay. <laughs> do it in the nicest possible way, but strong arm some folks. <laughs> and one way you might be able to do that, uh, and I'd like for you to talk about to some degree, is, is you know, we, we often think of, you know, particularly a small town lawyer like myself, the opportunity cost or the actual dollars and cents cost mm -hmm. of doing pro bono, but it's also true that sometimes doing a pro bono case is preventive of m more taxing things on the judicial system. For instance, doing a Judicare TPO may prevent you know a, a aggravated assault getting indicted mm -hmm. or or you know, something worse or, you know, handling a power of attorney for someone or a will might prevent an air property situation. And I will tell you that you will never convince me to take an air property pro bono <laughs> case. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to take another paying air property case. Um, Solution, do more wills for people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's your pitch. There's do your more pitch. wills do for more people. Wills. <laughs> um, can, can you talk about, though, that is somewhat of a is a marketing tool for y'all or, or more, more really more practically, I mean, how it benefits the, not the, just the profession, but the, the whole state to do things like that. It's a pitch we, we, our pro bono folks often make to judges, you know, help us recruit volunteer lawyers because this is what it's going to do for the court. Mm -hmm. It'll speed up your operations. It'll make things easier. Somebody on the other side who's unrepresented will be represented. And especially when you've got a situation where both parties are represented, at least help us get one party represented in, in, in this situation. And, you know, you do see some, like, major changes in people's lives with a pro bono case. You know, you do avoid, the, the, like, the, something far worse, you know, an eviction where, you know, the, the person's on, like, oxygen or life support and they're being evicted from their home. And those things happen. It's, it's, it's really frightening what happens to people when they can't get legal help. Um, and it, it, really, it really affects the community in a very core way, especially in small towns and rural areas. And something happens to somebody when it could have been prevented um, or, or at least ameliorated. Um, why not? But we don't have enough firepower to get that done. But if we have more people talking as a community about justice building and building communities around legal remedies and access to the courts and access to lawyers, um, that's a really important discussion. 
you know, we have a lot of local bar associations around Georgia that exist in, you know, name only, or they get together every once in a while for a holiday party or something. Some are more active than others. But, uh, you know, if you look at it and see that there's a bar association in X county in, I don't know, somewhere like around Bainbridge, you might know that you're not going to get a lot of people there. Now, if we're coming to talk to lawyers and trying to get lawyers to do these things, if I were to show up at the Atlanta Bar Association meeting, I would have hundreds of people sitting out there to talk to. But if I go to, down to Hayhira or Barney or Mystic or, um, or Oscilla or, um, you know, wherever to talk to lawyers, I may be talking to one lawyer. It's, you, you just, you don't get the firepower or the, you know, it's, it's, it's far more resource intensive to get that message out in rural Georgia to lawyers. It's really hard and I don't know, I haven't figured out a solid way around that yet. So we talk to judges and hopefully they'll help us recruit. They'll make it nicer for pro bono lawyers in the courtroom if they identify themselves as pro bono lawyers. Maybe get a little better treatment in, in the calendar if they're identifying themselves as helping someone who would otherwise be pro se. And that's really important that judges recognize these things as well because they're part of the solution and frankly they're part of the problem. The courts are, you know, why my question has always been on the access to justice side and it's been a question in other access to justice commissions and efforts around the country is why do two people who have no money no assets no children have to go through a Cadillac divorce system it's taking so much money away from the courts and resources and time and it's also the resources and time of the litigants themselves so why are we why are we just looking at lawyers to solve the problem of pro bono and access to justice the courts have a role in this as well the Judicial Council does have an Access to Justice Committee that's very active in working on many of these issues. And the Bar's Access to Justice Committee works with them as well, so the two committees get together and we share information, we share agendas so that we're not doubling up or wasting time and effort on these issues. So what judges can do, um, they can identify things. It, early on, they're the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. uh, just like any lawyer who's tuned into the community is the canary in the coal mine. What's going on here? Um, how can we fix these things? Which national mega company is coming in and buying up all the rental homes and no one can find a place to live? Um, not that that's a legal problem yet, but it can generate legal problems. Out of this recent disaster in uh, the Henry, the January 12 tornadoes, and I don't know, Ron, you caught that on one of the, on one of the log sheets, but we had someone called in and said she had been um, removed from her apartment because it was uninhabitable from the tornadoes. She thought it could be repaired, but anyway, she was evicted, dispossessed, and um, the next few days, she saw her sim apartment listed for $600 more a month. And we know what's happening. Um, and it, it was, was it pretext? Likely. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, how often, how many more times did that happen that we don't know about? And is it happening in other situations now? But we, you know, we're the canaries in those coal mines. And it can't be just the legal aid program that's shouting and looking at these things because we're not always there. I mean, we've got lawyers who serve maybe 20 counties, not 20 counties, maybe five counties each. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. On the pro bono side, you know, we, we don't reach every lawyer every day, only when we need someone or have an available case. So who's talking about local issues? Obviously, we have the ultimate question we ask everybody. And, and you've kind of danced around it a little bit with some of what you've been talking about. But as Mike Monahan, what is it that you point to that says, this is the trait or this is the thing that makes a good lawyer? I think empathy, number one, is number one. You know, how, how do you relate to people who are having some kind of problem, whether it's personal, professional, 
um, health, whatever the problem happens to be. You know, how do you reach out to them? Is it, uh, if you reach out to them at all? I think empathy is number one. You can't be just nose down in the paperwork all the days of your life, or all, all the hours of your day, and, and function as a human being. I think you have to reach out and be with people who are like you and who are unlike you, and spend your days understanding how you can work with people and relate and you know, improve the justice system by understanding people and their problems. We handle people's, people and their problems every day, but do we really understand? We often like make judgments about why they're there with that problem. And we're, I, myself included, you know, you often think, oh, well, this happened to you, and you because you did this and you forgot to do this and you didn't bother with this. But then you, know, you step back just a little bit further and think, why? Why didn't you do that? And then you see something else, like, oh, now I get it. And it often makes you a better lawyer because you've really come to the more authentic reason why you're there, they're there in court. And they react to you differently and they become a better client and a better witness uh, at the same time. So, you know, understanding your client and really knowing before you walk in the door, you know, what's the thing we were always admonished about in law school? Never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Well, you're asking questions you don't know the answer to because your client, you've never, you don't really understand your client. And you're always going to ask a question you don't know the answer to because you don't know what you should know. And empathy gets you there. Absolutely. And I think that is probably the best place to leave this because you've talked so much about service and what lawyers can do, what you have done, and ultimately bringing it down to that one word, empathy, being a key trait for a good lawyer. And I think that you yourself have shown that through your practice and everything you've been involved in too. So living out that example is, is the best way, I think, to be a good lawyer. So we appreciate everything you've done to live out that trait and, and teach others about portraying that trait. So well, we, we thank you so much for that and coming on the show today. I thought this was going to be scary. <laughs> Not at all. Well, it sort of is. Uh, it sort of is. <laughs> but we do appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. This podcast was created by the Young Lawyers Division of the State Bar of Georgia. It was produced, recorded, and edited by Jamie Goss. Special thanks to Ron Daniels and D. Sarah Young. Follow the YLD on social media at Georgia YLD. Call in with questions on the podcast at 404-526-8607.